You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects' Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects' Journal. In this episode, we're looking at building performance in domestic retrofit to make the point that understanding how buildings perform is important in all projects, both large and small. We'll also hear how domestic retrofit can be a launchpad for community activism. And this segues nicely into our next few episodes, which will look at domestic retrofit, a hot topic which is increasingly under the spotlight. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, director of 1.5 Architecture. Many thanks to all of you who wrote in for the book giveaway for Energy People Buildings. We have three winners... Ursula O'Reilly, a senior architect in Ireland's Department of Education, Hugo Santos, a student at the University of Westminster, and Gabriela Tonye, a recent graduate of the MAC, working at 7N Architects in Glasgow. Thanks to all of you who wrote in. most important thing I think we can do is come to the table with a radical agenda if you like because that's what we need for the buildings and the retrofits that we're doing over the next decade. The potential for architecture to be able to inspire people and to really act as a calling card for the green agenda has really been what's motivated me because I think everything we can do to raise that awareness the climate activism, the community work on the ground that I've done has flowed out of wanting to do that, that advocacy work. Our guest today is Birmingham-based architect John Christophers, a climate champion from way back. John designed his own home, which he calls a zero-carbon home, a terraced house retrofit in Birmingham's Balsall Heath neighborhood back in 2009, and he's been monitoring it ever since. In this conversation, John explains his approach to zero-carbon over a decade ago and what he has learned from years of monitoring. I first met John about 10 years ago when he toured me through the boathouse he designed with associated architects for the King's School in Worcester. This was and remains a favorite amongst all buildings I've written about over the years. It sits adroitly in the school's campus, resolving a previously awkward courtyard, and looks like it's always been there. You could easily walk by this handsome brick building without realizing how pioneering it is. It's just good architecture, which is also green architecture. John has had a long involvement and collaboration with Associated Architects, where he was a partner until 2004, when a serious bike accident prompted him to rethink his career and go freelance. He has collaborated regularly with Associated Architects over the years, designing numerous Passive House projects, and most recently, the Green at St. Richard's Hospice. He began as the practice's green champion back in the 1990s, 
later launching a green team. Today, John increasingly works client-side as a sustainability champion and design advisor. He recently authored Hereford's Future Home Standard for 2,500 new net-zero homes to be delivered over the next decade. I've invited John onto the podcast for a wide-ranging discussion, but also to continue the theme from recent episodes on building performance. John tweets at Zero Carbon House. John, following our our last episode with Craig Robertson, AHMM's Head of Sustainability, I'd like to ask you about your role at Associated Architects and how it's evolved over the years. How does the practice work? to deliver sustainable design across projects. Well, firstly, thank you for having me on the show and thank you for your wonderfully warm introduction, Hattie. It's, it's a pleasure to be with you both. I set up the green team at Associated Architects as soon as I became a, a director in the year 2000, because what I wanted to do was to spread the knowledge across all the teams. The learning has come from a lot of different projects and a lot of different people going out to look at particular things, but really to have a forum where we've met monthly, uh, pretty regularly, to share ideas, to share news and and topics people may have read up about something that, that there's been something that deserves more more discussion what we then experimented with is two different ways of bringing that knowledge back one was to have a separate sustainability review for each project we tried that for a bit but we really felt that that was leaving sustainability out on its own and it really needed to be completely integrated into the normal design reviews that we had as associated architects. So we made sure that at every design review and every project in the office goes through a design review, we had the sustainability as an integral part of that. Of course, this is now firmly embedded in the plan of work, but of course, I'm going back 20 years or so and it certainly wasn't. So I think the green team has really been a great focus for knowledge sharing. And the other thing which grew out of it is that one Friday, a month we have a practice um, breakfast and we've always had a green team slot sometimes it's been news about one particular project someone's got married whatever but whatever we've kept drip 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 we've kept the green focus and the green visibility because I think you know the people in practices they're busy there are all sorts of pressures and I think it's just keeping it at the top of people's radar the whole time is, is as important as anything really. So thinking about the frameworks that are used for sustainable design. As designers, we don't get to choose the site that our building is on. So a lot of the impacts of a building aren't included, for example, from transport or infrastructure. Birmingham is still suffering from having gone mad for cars in the 1960s. And so thinking about how we integrate transport impacts, like for high-rise buildings, they might have a lot of embodied carbon, but they're sharing more infrastructure and transport is less. And the new IPCC report emphasises the importance of living densely. But that isn't necessarily picked up in the frameworks for sustainable architecture in itself. So how do you frame your thinking in terms of a kind of overall picture of sustainability? Well, so many interesting points in that question, George. But I think the transport thing is being completely reworked in in Birmingham now. Those familiar with the city will know that 20, 30 years ago, that the concrete collar, that the inner ring road was broken, the city has expanded. We've now got a a clean air zone and there's considerable improvement on on those things. You mentioned the IPCC report. We're we're living at, uh, I think, such a crucial time in history and the press release, which which the Secretary General of, of the IPCC gave with the latest 
report. It should be required reading for every architect. The fact that he talks about the moral and economic madness of continuing fossil fuel investments, and, and yet we have a government which a few days later insisted it wanted to do that. The fact that the Secretary General said that the dangerous radicals were not the climate activists, who I personally salute the courage of some of the people going out there raising the profile of these things. The dangerous radicals were not the climate activists, but the countries who are increasing their investments in fossil fuel. And I, I think when we look at this, to, to answer your question as in the widest possible way, I think the first starting point needs to be what's in the RIBA Code of Conduct, that we as professionals have an obligation not just to raise this issue, but to advocate, to advocate, I think is the word used in the RIBA code now, to advocate for sustainable development and sustainable design. But that's the most important thing I think we can do is, is to come to the table with a radical agenda, if you like, because that's what we need for the buildings and the retrofits that we're, we're doing over the next decade. I think the way to frame the whole discussion needs to come, as, as you say, in a very holistic way, Way. One of the frameworks that I like and I introduced into the Herefordshire Future Homes standard, which we'll perhaps talk about in a moment, but is, is Bioregional's uh, One Planet Living principles, the 10 One Planet Living principles, which um, Sue Riddleston and Purin Desai at Bioregional, when they um, were doing bedsed, you know, 20 years ago now, but out of that, with the involvement of the World Wildlife Fund, has evolved the, um, the, the One Planet Living principles. But I think that starts from this holistic goal, which the um, again, the, the, the Code for Sustainable Homes now defunct had this wide focus. BRIAM and, and other documents have a wider focus, but I think can sometimes be in danger of, of being reduced to a sort of tick box exercise. But I, I think if we can look at this wide, wide focus, which includes, as you absolutely say, you know, transport, biodiversity, I think the first point on one planet living is actually health and happiness. Now, some might regard that as much too nebulous, <laughs> but I think there's actually, and, and you know, they then come down to number 10 in their list is zero carbon. Okay, serious, serious stuff here. But I think if we start from the point of view of, of health and happiness and what that means and how you arrive in the building, we're perhaps all more conscious now following COVID of the impact of mental health and all these sorts of issues. And if we can design for health and we can design for happiness, that is a really important starting point. You know, Palladio was, or, or Vitruvius, I should say, saying pretty much the thing with, with firmness, commodity and delight. We can't leave that out of this, particularly with, with the green building agenda, I think. John, you've said so many important things there. One thing I want to pick up on is the the way you've chosen to work in terms of being more proactive and being able to put forward a more radical agenda. So you actually left Associated Architects in 2009 and have worked in a freelance capacity with the practice while pursuing your own projects at the same time. And this is a model I've seen others do. And I'm wondering if this may be a model for Akenners or others coming up through the profession. What observations do you have about that? For me, it's been very much a liberation to move sort of beyond associated architects, if you like. I mean, I've been working within and beyond associated architects. But I think the first thing which drove me was the increasing pace of life in practice. And there, there, there are certain things where, which one can do within one's paid time. There are other things, the, the ability to dream, to visit buildings, to be reflective, to continually to be fresh creatively, which I felt I wanted to 
pursue outside the practice. So I moved down to four days a week and I was then doing a lot of other things alongside that. But I I'm, believe you were a, a partner and then you moved back to associate. That's, that's right. Yes, I, I was a partner and director on the basis that I could do four days a week. So I was an 80% uh, partner at that time. I then actually partly precipitated because I, I had a cycle accident. I fell off my bike and I had to lie in a darkened room for quite a long time. Uh, but I decided then it refocused my interest. And what really motivated me was design, high-end design, but also completely integrated, seamlessly integrated sustainability. I think there were projects that I've been doing outside Associated Architects, starting with our own house, the Zero Carbon House in 2009, but also pieces of policy work for, for, for local authorities. And I think as well, recognising that the role of design and sustainability champion is a really important one at the moment. We've got clients who are perhaps, whether they're public or private sector clients, beginning to think, heck, you know, we, we should be doing something about this, but not knowing, certainly in the public sector, not having the knowledge, the organisational knowledge, not having had the investment over the years to know exactly what they should be asking for. And we've got a few design teams who have done this, nothing like at the scale that we need. And I think there's a role for a, a sort of design and sustainability champion to help interpret to the client what the design team can get out of a PHPP or something, to help interpret both ways, really, to see what the client's priorities are and to try and put that in a way that can be framed in, in a brief, which can then go to a design team and without wasting lots of time trying this or that, that we can, we can focus it. So I think that role has been of particular interest to me where I've got enough grey hairs now and enough projects to be able, I hope, to make a real difference to both public and private sector clients. But I think as well, the other thing which is um, a joy about working freelance is, is that one can be completely uninhibited in terms of one's, one's sort of environmental activism, if you like. I mean, I've, I've got no hesitation of standing up with the Architects Climate Action Network with banners going on a march or, or whatever it may need. That campaigning part of, of one's, <laughs> one's life really is, is critically important at this time, I think, and it's a happy place to be with, without having other colleagues who might feel upset about that. So a project that you led a while ago with high design and sustainability standards was the Michael Baker Boathouse for the King's School in Worcester, which won a Reba Award in 2012, which Hattie called her Building of the Year for that year. Could you tell us about that project? It was a fascinating project. It's, it's on the edge of the Worcester conservation area where the old city wall of, of Worcester meets the countryside. So it was the edge of a fortification, which in fact goes right back to the Iron Age. And on this line where, where the river meets the fortification, there was a rather nasty 1940s little brick building in this area, which is all sandstone and, and uh, Georgian bricks and so forth. We had the brief to design this new boathouse we, we designed the thing in, in two parts. There's a lower part, which is a brick plinth, designed as a sacrificial area which can flood because the river rises very high. And in fact, the floodplain level rose by a whole metre as the Environment Agency re-looked at it. So the plinth grows out of a sort of Georgian garden wall and it's this sacrificial, if you like, in flooding terms, low part. And then poised above it is the cantilevered sweet chestnut-clad timber box but it's not a box it's a curving sort of prow shape which cantilevers right out over the river to give views up and down the river 
But the whole thing was done to passive house levels using PHPP with uh, integrated renewables. So we had two types of solar panel on the roof, both hot water panels for a lot of people take showers, obviously, and there's a good hot water usage, but also PV panels. And they were integrated into the build so that they're on a south facing pitched roof, which frames the roof light, which then lights the, uh, the, the inside of the boathouse. We were delighted just with the way that the whole thing resolved a piece of townscape and, and a sort of a very visible building on, on the prow there. But I hope with uh, the sustainability credentials seamlessly embedded, I, I think the carbon figures were about, um, I think it was less than 10 kgs of uh, CO2 per square metre per year. So ultra low carbon. Best practice moves so quickly in this area. Is there anything you would do differently now? I believe you had a wood pellet boiler in there. Well, that's right, we did. And I think I would certainly not put the wood pellet boiler in Hattie now. We would be looking at ground source heat pumps, I think. But in other terms, I think Fabric First has stood us in, in good stead and, and we've got very, very good air tightness, triple glazing and so forth. The mechanical ventilation and heat recovery system is still very good. The renewables are good. We might well have put some batteries in, which we didn't do at the time, but I, I think makes, uh, makes quite a lot of sense now. A more recent project from the practice is the Green at St Richard's Hospice. It has an extraordinary main space, a kind of glue lamb diagrammed fan vault with aisles and a clerestory. It's it's almost gothic. Can you tell us how this project came about and, and about the design process for it? Well, they're a fantastic client. I mean, I, I met at St Richard's some of the pioneers of the hospice movement who are now in their 90s are still involved and still come out, you know, on walking sticks to the big occasions. And it's really inspirational to meet them and just to understand the genesis of, of the hospice movement in this country. But the vision for this building, the green is actually the third phase of a master plan, which I, which I originated with them. The concept of of the whole thing is about living well. It's not about, you know, supporting you in the last days of your life and thinking about death. It's about quality of life. One of the key tenets is if people are stuck in the hospice, they they can no longer go out into the community, but the community can still come into them. And so the main space of the green is conceived for a variety, a multiplicity of uses, really. Firstly, that big events can happen there. So, you know, someone in the family is getting married. Well, X sadly can't get out, but we can actually have the wedding here. There may be groups that are touring with concerts, recitals, art exhibitions, that sort of thing. So the green becomes the heart of of the community, hence partly the term, you know, like the idea of a village green. I think also in, in terms of the clinical work, which they need to do, this is very much normalised so that rather than going into a, a white consulting room and lying on a couch and having one's blood tested and so forth, one can come into this space, sit on a sofa, have a coffee and the medics can make all sorts of observations just in conversation and pick up a lot of things. And really the central space you allude to, the, 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 the Gothic space, is really an infilling of an existing quadrangle, a courtyard, which was hardly used and was sadly neglected. But because it's, it's at the heart of, of, of the plan, we were able to reconfigure and rework all the ancillary spaces so that they are now accessed from this central space rather than from artificially lit corridors around the perimeter. And so all the different functions which one wants, a, a sort of art room, a gym, hairdresser, horticulture, 
all sorts of different uses which the users of the hospice might want are accessed off this central space. And really the form resulted from wanting to flood the thing with natural light. So it feels like a sort of a winter garden, if you like, that it's 100% glass. In fact, it's only about 30% glass because of the way we've used the coffers, very steeply splayed coffers. So we've got very good U values. We've got triple glazed roof lights and passive house levels of of insulation and so forth. But the clear story idea came really to maximise the quality of of natural light in the space. We were also able to do a lot of work with VOCs on this, which I think has not been widely understood in the industry. But I was able to say to the client, look, a number of your your users of the hospice are actually suffering from respiratory diseases because they've been carpenters, they've worked in the uh, building industry, they've been exposed to VOCs. And really just to bring up the visibility of VOCs, because, you know, I, I think we're sort of, we're 30 years behind, 40 years behind asbestos. And so this project, I felt, was an opportunity to make it visible. And so I got uh, Professor Tom Woolley involved, who's written extensively about on this subject, and he was able to come in and do a symposium with the client. People really got it. And so we were then able to pioneer a completely VOC-free specification and monitored VOC levels because it's an existing building both before and after. And I'm pleased to say it's, it's recently won a, uh, a Structural Timber Award as well as Healthcare Project of the Year. You've also recently authored the Hereford Future Home Standard for Herefordshire Council. And I noticed that the image on the contents page is Mikhail Ritchie's Clayfield Project in Suffolk, which we discussed with Annalie Ritchie's in episode two. Tell us about the standard. I think Herefordshire is an interesting authority. It was won politically by a coalition of Greens and, and independents. And they decided to scrap a road building programme, which the previous administration had, and instead to devote a lot of attention to building two and a half thousand new zero carbon homes over the next 10 years, which I think is a fantastic ambition. I was invited to put the proposals forward. And I think really I've based it on two tenants. One, One is the Passive House Plus standard. We wanted to look at Passive House almost as a sort of, you know, a baseline. And I think the Good Homes Alliance Build Net Zero Now has been fantastic as a sort of lever for that. And also the Passive House work, which has been done by York and Norwich and, and many others now. And I think it's interesting in terms of the certification and the fact that we've got this vast performance gap as we now know, in some cases, vaster than others, but, you know, 60% is, is often quoted. And I know your previous episode had bigger figures than that. But I, I think the credibility that the Passive House certification gives, I, I think, is really important because Herefordshire Council are not wanting simply to build these homes and, and sell them. They're wanting people to live in them and to reap the benefits of them over the years. So the actual performance is of great interest, uh, rightly so. And so we use Passive House, but we've used the Passive House Plus standard because we do want to put renewables on. So that was one tenet. The idea of sustainable community was very important to the client. And that's where this framing of the bioregional one planet uh, living principles came and is embedded into the report. The other thing I'm very proud of that we did in the report, if we can get down with the operational energy to roughly zero carbon without being too pernickety about exactly how you work it out, but Passive House Plus gives you a good dose of of renewables to set against whatever the energy use is. But that leaves the great question of embodied carbon. What does one do with that? 
Should one be building new at all? Lots, lots of questions. In this instance, there's a housing need across the county. They need to build. There's a great need for affordable housing. So it was a given that for the purposes of this policy, we were looking at a policy for new build. But I was very vocal that we shouldn't leave behind existing homes. And if we're looking at a Herefordshire village or a market town where some new housing is going to be perhaps parachuted in, in, in the eyes of some locals, while they're living in poor old leaky housing, what I've looked at is that the carbon reductions, the real tangible carbon reductions, which you can get by retrofitting a house down from X to sort of, you know, perhaps 10% of, of that or 20% of that. So a massive 80% carbon saving there is, I think, a much more locally equitable way of doing things than simply saying, OK, we will offset this with some invisible trees which are planted somewhere. But I think if you're going to a community and if the offer is we would like to put some new housing here, but in the same breath, we would also like to upgrade some of your existing houses to a very much better standard and that as part of that offering the carbon which is saved from the retrofitted houses is used if you like as a visible offset to the inevitable embodied carbon in the new build then that seemed to be a powerful message but I think in terms of looking at how we bring retrofit forward and how we do this as a joined up piece of new homes plus old homes in the county of Herefordshire. I'm really pleased that it's been adopted as a policy. It was supported, in fact, I'm pleased to say across the political spectrum by all the different political parties in the council at Herefordshire. So I wish them every success in putting it into practice now. Are there projects in the pipeline yet? Absolutely. There are three or four already going, Hattie. And so there's a pipeline of, I think, about a dozen sites all set up. It's really interesting to hear about the Passive House Plus standard in the context of everybody's energy bills going through the roof. So they generate the same amount of energy that they'll use through the year by basically solar panels. How does that affect the design of the house? Does it mean that, for example, you could only really do two storeys to make sure that you've got enough roof? Would flats be possible? How does having the dwelling as the energy boundary affect the design? Okay, well, I think with the Passive House Plus standard, as you rightly say, the renewables depend on the footprint rather than on the service volume or or area or so so forth. So what we've done for Herefordshire, just to keep it simple, is to say, okay, Passive House Plus standard. Now, if we're looking across the county, across two and a half thousand homes, perhaps some of them will be in Hereford city centre and they may be three or four storey flats. Therefore, they will have slightly less on-site renewable energy as a percentage. But nevertheless, you know, the heat loss will be much less on the the surface area, the form factor of, of those of those flats. But on the other hand, there will be two storey buildings elsewhere. They may be generating more energy than they will need over the uh, over the cycle of the year. So it's a broad thing. And we haven't we've purposefully not wanted if you know, if, if we're looking at some of these developments may only be 10 homes or, or whatever. We haven't wanted to make it too bureaucratic and difficult to say, OK, you've got to through this software and this formula jump through these hoops. We've just said if you get Passive House Plus certified, then that is, I think, particularly because it's increasingly recognised by building contractors. If you go back to when Exeter were first doing Passive House, they said they were paying a premium of 25%. But there are now enough building contractors around who say, OK, Passive House, 
we've done this one, we went through a learning curve on it, but we've now got a team of people who do understand it. It could be led by X, Y, Z. We understand how to do a toolbox talk. And so I think all that really helps to bring down the perception of risk and to help with the management of the thing. And I think it's very much in Herefordshire's thinking that if this can become a mainstream thing, then it, it upskills all the workforce in the county and it brings down the cost. And so the question really has been not... Or should we go to this standard? Can we afford it? Do we need to water it down? But the conversation has been, and the way I've, I've helped to steer them has, has been to say, look, if we set the standard and we say, this is it, and they would like this standard to apply to other developments as well, not just council housing, and they're looking at supplementary planning guidance and so forth. But if we say, this is the standard, people will upskill and then the costs will come down. So that's the game plan. That's really interesting. So I believe you've also been involved in some community-led retrofit in Birmingham using the lens of Kate Rayworth's Donut Economics. What can you tell us about that? Well, I'm really excited about that. And I think I can perhaps give you a Climate Champions podcast first that we are now planning a retrofit festival in Birmingham, pencil in the 14th, 15th of July this year. And we're collaborating with ACAN, with the New Economics Foundation, uh, with with Civic Square in Birmingham. Now, many of your listeners may not know Civic Square. They're, they're a wonderful organisation in Birmingham who've done some radical work over the years. And we're doing this collaborative piece of work with Kate Rayworth. And for those who aren't totally familiar with Donut Economics, I think Kate is one of the great thinkers of our age. The subtitle of, of her book is Seven Ways to Think as a 21st Century Economist. And the idea of the outer ring of the donut representing the planetary boundaries, which we mustn't exceed in terms of our CO2 emissions and water usage and all the rest of it. The hole in the middle of the donut being the sort of poverty standard below which one shouldn't fall. And one can look at that globally in terms of safe water, education, access to basic commodities and so forth. And the donut is the happy area between the outer planetary boundaries and the inner poverty threshold where one wants to be in that happy area of the donut. Now, Kate has applied this idea to countries. She's applied it to leading cities, Amsterdam, Toronto, and so forth. She's never applied it at a neighbourhood scale. And I think as we begin to think more and more about retrofit, this has got to happen, in my view, at the local level. We haven't yet got any sort of national retrofit standard, sadly. I, I hope this will change, but that's the position at the moment. Local government are not resourced to do this. And I think there are a lot of barriers as well about retrofit. People feel, well, you know, I'm struggling along. I don't want you to come in and rip my house to pieces. What's the benefit to me? But I think if we can look at the local level, and in my local area here, I'm in Paulsall Heath, which is a diverse inner city area of Birmingham. We've been having lots of conversations over the 14 years since we completed the Zero Carbon House. We've had open days every year. We've had lots of interest and we're collaborating with some of the local mosques and synagogues and different community groups and so forth. And there's a really strong interest in doing retrofit and understanding the benefits, which are particularly health benefits. We've got a lot of Victorian housing, terraced housing with poor insulation, therefore mould and condensation, mildew, therefore pre-existing respiratory diseases, therefore pre-existing susceptibility to COVID. And lo and behold, that's, that's what happened very sadly. 
by the same token, we can turn this around. And I think if we can insulate all these, these houses, really as part of a, a festival, not just talking about insulation, but talking about reimagining, reinventing, talking about community, talking about the resilience of, of the community, because I think the conversations which we have around, if there's a whole terrace of houses of mixed tenure, different people in them, getting people together thinking, well, what do we want? What are we prepared to do? What do we understand about this? And really then releasing this sort of grassroots up type of energy that people can really see that this makes a, a massive difference. If we can make all these benefits visible to people, then it becomes a complete no brainer, I think, and, and something that we can really celebrate. And if we can reduce by, you know, in, in the retrofitted buildings I've done over the years, we've reduced energy by 80, 90, 95%. To be working on this with Civic Square and Ladywood and with local people in, in Balsall Heath here is really, for me, inspirational because we're moving forward on an agenda which leaves new building to one side. We're looking at retrofit and I think we should salute the victory of Will Hurst and the AJ Retro First campaign that coupled with the um, Architects Climate Action Network and the New Economic Foundation and many others, the small victory but really important victory that, that VAT is to be zero rated for at least uh, five years now. So that's a massive step forward, which I can't count the number of campaigns I've signed up to over, over the decades on, on this particular point. I hope it will give um, extra momentum to the retrofit movement. Thanks for that, John. I want to ask you now about your own home. It has a very unusual presence on the street of terraced houses with a projecting bay at upper level, which towers over the adjacent house, I, I think it's fair to say. Inside, it has magnificent vertical spaces and spectacular views into your back garden, the kind of views that lift the spirits every time you look out. Can you describe your home for our listeners? We'll put some links in the show notes. I was, like many other architects, I, I was looking for a site to build a new house on. And we love the area that we've lived in, my wife and I, for sort of 15 years before this. And the penny quickly dropped that there were no, no vacant sites, but there was a terraced house with some land just adjacent to it. We could build the new part to a zero carbon standard, but we could look at retrofitting the old part of the house to that same very demanding zero carbon standard. And we used the Code for Sustainable Homes, which had just come out. Out, which seemed as, as good a framework as any. We wondered about doing passive house, but this was 2009. No one had, had uh, dared to do a passive house, I think it's fair to say, in the UK at that time. We did actually analyse the house through the PHPP. People were sort of tinkering with it and we looked at air tightness and so forth. But So, so the house falls into two parts. There's the 170-year-old two-up, two-down terraced house, which we've retrofitted with serious wall and roof and floor insulation, triple glazed windows and so forth. And then there's the new part of the house, which doubles the floor space of the house, which is a three-storey load-bearing unfired clay structure, clay blocks, with a mono-pitched roof with PV panels on it and also with solar hot water panels on it. And we've, we've wrapped up both parts, the old and, and the new, to passive house levels of insulation. But really, it's been an exercise in looking at how we can use ultra-low carbon materials. So obviously, firstly, the existing house, but uh, secondly, the new build with, as I say, the unfired clay blocks, a lot of recycled materials, all our door handles of Arnyak and some design classics reclaimed from another building. We've got 19 different reclaimed materials. We've used earth 
compacted earth for all the floors throughout the building. So it's 75 millimetres of, of a clay screed, a compacted, unfired clay screed, finished with beeswax and natural oil. That, with the clay block walls, gives a very, very high thermal mass for the house. The materials and the design of the house are, are really... I, I was wanting to use the power of architecture to inspire people, particularly people who don't get the climate agenda, but may be turned on by an interesting design. And among people who visited, I'm pleased to say people have really sort of, you know, wanted to know more about it and have gone away thinking, well, okay, perhaps we can't do X or Y with our house, but now you've made us think about sustainability, we can do something with our food or our transport or or whatever. I think it's so important that alongside the doom and gloom and the climate predictions and the IPCC and so forth, that we have examples which inspire and start to show a way forward. We can dramatically reduce our carbon footprint and our energy use without reducing the quality of life, the quality of environment, natural light and so forth. And so I I think we can do exciting things and improve the quality of life, but also reduce the carbon footprint very, very dramatically, then we feel we've done something worthwhile. Fantastic. So at the time, this was the first zero carbon retrofit to the standard of the old Code for Sustainable Homes Level 6. What does zero carbon mean here? What were the boundaries? Was it operational or embodied energy as well? The original Code for Sustainable Homes didn't look at embodied carbon. You had to look at various BREAM ratings for the materials which we did. But of course, in my terms, it's not too difficult to get an A rating for BREAM, but it disguises the fact that there may be a differential of, you know, a thousand to one between a, a high energy material and an ultra low embodied material by which I mean earth from the site itself and so we've gone a lot further than the code for sustainable homes in terms of the embodied energy so the code looked at operational energy and it looked at regulated plus unregulated energy the pv which we've put on on the roof and the solar thermal and so forth we've actually had the great pleasure of working with professor lubo yankovic from zero carbon lab on monitoring the house over a period of more than 10 years now and we found that If we look at the renewables which we've got through the, um, we've got a a biomass wood burning stove, which again, I wouldn't do today. And in fact, we've, we've hardly needed to use that. But if we look at that, plus the PV, plus the solar hot water, we've actually generated all our own energy, which you can call 100%, plus another 40%. So in terms of operational energy, we're positive. In terms of uh, embodied carbon, we've actually got a paper going through peer review at the moment, because when I initially did the calculations for the house, we didn't have the databases which have now come out and and the RICS methodology, which has been widely adopted. So we're looking at the embodied carbon at the moment. And I think the headlines are the fact that it's ultra low embodied carbon. It's maybe 20% of what a new build would be. But interestingly, when you look at the 60-year whole life period for embodied carbon and for looking at it, because we've got PV and we're assuming that we put that PV on on day one and that we renew it after 30 years and it goes on for 60 years, we have to make some assumption. But the embodied energy in the PV and the solar thermal is actually quite a significant chunk because the other materials are all so low embodied. 
then the renewables are quite a big chunk. And the, the PV pays for itself in carbon terms in about seven years. The solar thermal pays for itself in carbon terms in about three years. But the whole building, based on, on the current iteration of the research, the carbon that we've saved in terms of what would have been the old house, hemorrhaging heat every day through single glazing, uninsulated walls and so forth, we've offset the carbon saving of the house by building the new house in, in as little as two to three years. So it's incredible, really, that having put this investment in, into the house, that the saving is, is so dramatic. I think it's trying to measure these things. We, we can't just leave all our built heritage hemorrhaging heat. That's one option. We can't knock it down. That's another option. We have to retrofit it. We have to do something serious with it. And it's really, if you look at it against those options and you look at a 60-year whole life um, scenario, that the thing falls into a very different focus, I think. I wanted to drill down a little bit more on the monitoring aspect. How did you organize that? How many sensors and what kind of metering, just so people are, can understand the logistics of what's involved? Absolutely, yes. Well, Lubo Jankovic has, has got, I think he's measuring uh, 30 different parameters on the house and um, the, the, their little sensors, which are 24-7. And as I say, we've got about 10 years worth of data now. One or two of the monitors have, have failed and we've replaced them. So we've got one or two gaps. So we're measuring the temperatures in about six of the different rooms of the house, the internal temperatures, external temperatures. We're measuring internal CO2, internal humidity. We're looking at the solar incidence of, of radiation on the roof. And we've got some sensors which measure some of the different electricals. We're, we're not able to separate out every bit of the electrics, but the electrics to certain parts of the building are, are separately monitored. And we've also got a monitor on the, um, we've got this wood burning stove, which 80% um, of the heat goes into the hot water cylinder and we're able to measure and monitor that. One of the other pieces of feedback that, that I think is interesting is one tends to think that solar is, is no good in winter, but in fact, that's far from the case. Over the years we've been in the house, the solar thermal particularly has been fantastic. And the coldest months of the year have not been at the winter solstice in, in December. It, it's normally been sort of reasonably mild then. But when you get through into February, you've tended to hit the coldest part of the year. Now, by February, the solar has, has come up. You're getting quite significant, both electric, but more importantly, hot water solar yield then. And so the hot water goes into the cylinder and we've then got just two towel radiators in the house where, where that hot water comes out. So it's been fascinating to see the data, but, but to live with it as well, to, just to experience it. Could I ask about the earth as well that's been used? You've talked about having unfired clay blocks, but also earth floors that's made from the earth from the site. How, how does that, yeah, how did that happen? Well, I was very interested when I did a house 20 years ago called Cobton on the banks of the River Severn in Worcester. It was shortlisted for the, the, the Mansa Medal. It won an RIB award, attracted quite a lot of interest at the time, partly because we used earth from the site itself to make this big encircling wall around the site and the house, which is built in oak and glass, sort of organic shape, nestles against this, this wall. So my interest in earth-based materials was renewed, I think, 
I can say at that point. And when I came to do this zero carbon house for ourselves, I thought, how can we do this in an urban environment? Because it's very, very different from, uh, from a rural environment. So what we did was we needed for the foundations of the new part of the building to go down through the topsoil, down to the subsoil, the Birmingham subsoil. And so we dug out the Birmingham clay. We sieved it with a 10 mil sieve. We have then laid it as a dry screed, if you like, through all the floors in the house, including the ground floor, which is on an insulated uh, limecrete slab, but also on the upper floors where we've just put down a deck, a membrane, and then three inches of, of this clay down on top of it. We experimented with one room. We found we'd laid it too dry and it all cracked, but we then we, we got the mix right. In fact, we didn't quite have enough earth from the site, so we needed to import a little bit more clay, which meant that we could just adjust the mix slightly. And we troweled it, we, we laid it down as early as we could in the build process. Uh, it takes a long time to dry out, so we had just hardboard sheets across it. And there are one or two little cracks that appeared in it, which I think are very much to me part of the patina, the sort of natural quality of, of the material, as you would see veining in natural stone and so forth. And perhaps like natural sandstone, which is a, or, you know, many sedimentary rocks are basically earth which has been compressed over time. And I think our floors, are, after a year, certainly are as dense as the, certainly as the softer stones. And we've just waxed it, oiled it, and it's been a fantastic thing to do. I, I think somebody said it looked like red elephant hide, but uh, I, I hope it doesn't have quite the environmental impact on elephants that that would have. <laughs> well, finally, I'd like to ask you the question I ask almost all of my guests. So tell us where your interest in this whole topic started. I think I have to sort of date this back to 1972 and the Club of Rome report, The Limits to Growth. My parents were, were very interested in this and so I picked it up and read it. So I started my architectural training and for my part one, I actually went out to Tanzania and I was doing low-cost self-built housing out there using stabilised earth materials. So the earth interest goes back a long way with me. I came back to the UK with my eyes open to a much wider view of the world. I also was convinced the problems were the systemic problems back home. With the courage of my convictions, I went into practice only to be confronted with a health centre, which was one of the first buildings I designed, which um, at Associated Architects won a number of awards. But the budget at the time was based on single glazing. And having done all this work, I was with, with the zeal of youth, I was pounding the table and telling them, come on, we can't possibly build a single glazed building and so we got it double glazed and it was a great step forward but I think when the brief came along to design this house Cobton which I've um, mentioned earlier with, with this circling earth wall by the river we had a wonderful client who gave us this brief a 10-word brief which was sort of humour, mystery, intrigue, invisible, agricultural. For me, it was the ideal brief because I had a, a client who was a collector of pictures and, you know, wonderfully sensitive to the aesthetic and the spatial and light and quality and so forth. But equally, they were very passionate about wanting to do something which, um, which was a serious piece of, of joined-up sustainability. And we won the RIBA Sustainability Award with it that year, Cobton. And so then going on from there, a number of the buildings that I've done have been firsts. The eco-vicarages were the first, England's first buildings, which were both passive house 
and Code for Sustainable Homes Level 6 rated credit to the Diocese of Worcester, really enlightened client who stuck with it through difficult sort of um, procurement process and um, other passive house buildings like the Bartholomew Barn in, in Droitwich, the UK's first ever multi-comfort building and also passive house and so forth. But I think then to do our own house, to do the boathouse at, at Worcester and really just to see the potential for architecture to be able to inspire people and to really act as a calling card for the green agenda has really been what's motivated me because I think everything we can do to raise that awareness, the climate activism, the community work on the ground that I've done has, uh, has, has flowed out of wanting to do that, uh, that advocacy work. In one of the emails we exchanged preparing the podcast, you mentioned David Lee did you know David? Well, I think great credit to David Lee. I, I met him once, but I think his wise building in McCunthleth is a fantastic tour de force. It should have won the, the, the Sterling Prize, and I'm really pleased in the AJ that you've reprinted those articles about it. He was a touchstone, and David has been such a gentle voice, but such wonderful contemplative buildings. Perhaps, you know, airtightness and so forth were, were not the key concerns there. But I think if one is looking at, at architecture, serious green architecture is, is performing in terms of materials, but also in terms of quality of, of space and so forth. I think David's place needs to be more fully recognised in, in the profession as, as a whole. Thank you, John. The really, really interesting conversation and really interesting to see where you're taking all this now. We'll put all the links in the show notes. Thank you. Our next guest will be Sarah Edmonds of ACAN talking about Households Declare and campaigning for a joined-up national approach to domestic retrofit. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, please rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us so we can build an audience. You can find the show notes for this and previous episodes at architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.